Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and yes, this is episode 25, and there's nobody more surprised than me that we've hit our quarter century. When the show started, I thought with it being such a niche subject, you know, films set in one small area of one city, we do maybe 10 episodes. But here we are. Thank you for your continued support, and if you would like to help the show trudge on for another 25 episodes, please leave us a star rating and a nice review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites. Now, some of the themes of previous episodes have been a bit vague and the links a bit tenuous, but we're on rock solid ground with this one because we're talking about record shops. There was a golden age of the Soho record shop, a time when Soho and Berwick Street in particular was packed with specialist shops selling all sorts of music to hungry fans who made a beeline for this one square mile. That golden age has now passed, but it has been fully documented by my first guest, the writer and journalist Garth Cartwright. Garth is the author of two books about the history of record shops, and I met up with him to hear about that history. My second guest is the cultural commentator Ken Hollings, who is an old friend of Soho Bites, having appeared back in episode 9 to discuss the Soho Noir Night and the City, and also on the spin-off show Mural Mortals, where he talked about the romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. To demonstrate that he doesn't spend all of his time having high-minded thoughts about great works of art, Ken asked to come on Soho Bites again, this time to talk about one of his favourite films, the 1958 rock and roll B-movie for teenagers, The Golden Disc. By my reckoning, The Golden Disc is the third of four films set in and around the Soho coffee bar rock and roll scene of the 1950s, the most well-known of which is the cliff-tastic Espresso Bongo. See episode six for details. Ken likes Espresso Bongo, but he likes The Golden Disc more. Find out why in the second half of the show. Towards the end of 1963, the Paul Raymond Review Bar in Walker's Court got itself a new neighbour, the pop star Kenny Lynch, who'd opened a record shop next door called the Kenny Lynch Record Centre. That's Kenny you can hear there singing his 1963 hit, Crazy Crazies. All them crazy crazies do to you. 
This was not a case of a celebrity selling his naming rights to endorse a product he had no real connection to. Kenny was a key player in the pre-Beatles pop music scene and invested time as well as his own money in the shop, ordering stock, chatting to customers and sometimes working behind the counter. By this time, Soho had already become established as the centre of the record shop boom in the UK, with dozens of shops springing up all over the place from the late 40s onwards, and this can perhaps be explained by the area's proximity to the music publishing houses, live music venues, theatres and nightclubs. So in choosing Soho for the location of his shop, Kenny Lynch was riding the crest of a very well-established wave. To find out about the golden era of the Soho record shop and its origins, I got in touch with Garth Cartwright. Garth has written two books about the history of record shops, Going for a Song, which came out in 2018, and his most recent book, London's Record Shops, which at the time of recording was published just three weeks ago. After a few failed attempts to find a quiet indoor location to record the interview, we eventually parked ourselves on a bench in the churchyard of St Giles, just at the end of Denmark Street. This being summertime in the UK, there was a light drizzle which made my carefully written notes run down the page and some kids were taking it in turns to run timed circuits around the yard, which is what accounts for some of that background noise. To kick off, I asked Garth if Soho is still the mecca to record collectors that it once was. Soho's still a good little space. In uh, London's record shops, we've got, uh, you know, we document the shops that survive, which is obviously Reckless Records, which is the oldest shop on Berwick Street, Berwick Street being once the music mile of Soho. There's also Sister Ray, which used to be a kind of indie rock shop, but now is just a second-hand record shop. And then there's uh, very close by, there's uh, Sound of the Universe, which is a brilliant shop and home to the Soul Jazz label all kinds of music from around the world and a few minutes away from that in Poland Street is Fonica, the largest dance music shop still surviving in the UK and then if you go towards uh, Charing Cross Road you'll find Ray's Jazz, a great jazz shop that used to be on Charing Cross Road and now it's tucked into Foyle's uh, bookshop. It's still a place you can go and get all your new and old jazz releases and used 78s and such like. So Soho, not what it once was but still a good place to go looking for records. When was the heyday of Soho Record Shop? I'd say it was from the late 60s until the late 90s. The arrival of the LP is really what set Soho off. It started off with Alex Strickland. He was um, running shops called Soho Records, that's his first one, and then uh, Alex Strickland Record Shops. He had a small chain, a couple in Soho. He started off, I think, in um, a tobacconist, selling them out the back, and then developed it. This is the start of the 60s, and he was show tunes, jazz albums, stuff like that. He wasn't doing pop. And then it was followed up quite quickly by Harlequin Records, which was set up by a guy called Laurie Krieger. And he set up the first shop in Berwick Street. He, he opened a record shop in the basement of one of his stationery shops. And he was selling both pop and then R&B and jazz, lots of 45s, all the mods used to go there. It's thought that this Harlequin record shop which did become a big chain, he had over 70 shops at one point, is what really made people gravitate towards Berwick Street and that 
one point you had Musicland, which was uh, a legendary small chain of largely reggae and soul shops set up by a Jamaican national called Lee Gopthal. They had a big shop in Berwick Street, and it was a very, very hip shop. It's the one that you heard about Elton John used to go and work behind the counter. Then there was One Stop, which again was even hipper. It was where you got your underground prog rock and psychedelic records and all that kind of stuff. Danny Baker, he worked in One Stop uh, when he left school in about 1975, age 15. And he tells in his book stories of Mick Jagger, Mark Bolon, everyone, you know, Elton all the time, coming in and hanging out and shopping there and that. I mean, these were the record shops to the stars. And it just kept booming from there. You just, obviously, not just on Berwick Street, but all the surrounding streets, little jazz shops, shops doing secondhand, shops catering to punks, and then shops catering to all the kind of niche kind of music scenes that developed. When I read the book, I was, you, you talk about a particular record shop that was very early in Charing Cross Road, and I couldn't work out if it's pronounced Dobles or Dobells, but then on their bag, it had this slogan which was, um, every true jazz fan is born within the sound of Dobells, Dobells which yeah, made me realise yeah. how it's pronounced. Yeah, Tell me about Dobells, it sounds like an amazing place. Well, Doug Dobell uh, came back from World War II, went to work in his dad's antiquarian bookshop on Charing Cross Road that was called Dobells, and Doug was a, a jazz pianist and big, big jazz fan, so he started selling jazz 78s. You've got to remember after World War II, the, the, you know, because of rationing, because of the war, because of everything, it was very hard to get records. It was really hard to get, especially jazz and blues and stuff like that. You could obviously get the Vera Lynn's and um, Mantovani's and, and that kind of stuff. And so people gravitated towards it. And I think his dad just let him take it over, and, and not as a bookshop, but as a record shop. So it became really the first jazz and blues and folk music shop in London. And it became so successful that he had two shops side by side, Dobell's Jazz, Dobell's Folk and Blues. And whereabouts is it exactly? It's been knocked down now. It's that strip of um, Charing Cross Road that backs onto Chinatown. Okay. So, oh, yeah, you know, it's a new building that now, Yeah, it's a big, yeah. ugly brown building. Yeah. That, that's, Opposite the Peabody. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah, Dobell's was um, legendary. B.B. King called it his favourite record shop and used to hold court there. All kinds of jazz musicians would hang out there. You'd find uh, Phil Seaman nodding off in the corner. And uh, But yeah, Dobell's. It is a shop that people of that generation, post-World War II, that love jazz and blues and such, they talk about it with huge affection. And, uh, and Doug uh, ran his own little record label, put out you know, British jazz. Uh, he put out um, a folk album that um, features a certain Bob Dylan as um, Blind Boy Grunt. Oh um, yeah, Blind Boy yeah, Grunt. He, he, yeah. Couldn't, he couldn't be named on it because he had his uh, CBS deal. This is, uh, I think, in 62 or something. It was Richard Freener and such um, recording in the basement of Dobell's. So it really was a shop that um, is, you know, marked in the hearts of jazz fans. Of and how long did it last for? It lasted from 46 up till, I think, I think 91, Doug died of a heart attack uh, at the Nice Jazz Festival. His wife held on to it for a year, but obviously didn't know how to do it, and, and so then closed up shop. So Not um, a bad run, though. No, very good run, and considering it was always a specialist shop, it was always, as I said, jazz, blues, folk, things like that. It never tried to do um, pop and rock, then um, it survived well. And the other significant one you mentioned that's sort of pre the golden era is Colette's. Colette's was um, a big radical bookshop just down Charing Cross Road. And uh, when I say radical, it meant it was um, run by the Communist Party of Great Britain. And they had a basement jazz bar and it got developed really well. The, the people that ran it were, you know, they, they wasn't because they were party members, that was because they were music fanatics. And it was a famously good um, record shop for all things folk and blues. And it had tons of imports from around the world. It was one of the first places you could get 
music from India. Apparently George Harrison used to get out of his Rolls Royce and go in there to get his Indian albums and stuff like yeah, that. That's what I do as well. When I went and um, uh, one guy I talked to who worked there said he looked up one time and the customer was Julie Christie and that. So yeah, and it, it, it eventually split. Ray Smith, who ran the jazz department, set up Ray's Jazz, which I mentioned now exists still in um, foils. Ray is no longer with us, but his shop still is. And Colette's, it got attacked by Islamists in the 80s, supposedly on for, for stocking um, Salman Rushdie's book. It was an arson attack when it was closed. Didn't do much damage, but the fire um, engines, you know, spraying the water, damaged so much stock that they decided not to continue trading. It had been financed by a wealthy woman who was a communist supporter. So um, it, it was one of those, again, great London Soho stories of eccentrics and mavericks. And, and that was another, uh, what, 40-year period of time? Uh, well, Colette's, I think, started in the 30s. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I think the Ricker bar really got going post-war, so you're talking about 50s, and then um, closed in some point in the 80s. Um, and then Ray's, which had split off, kept going. Ray was in Charing Cross Road, and um, you'd walk in. Ground floor was all jazz. Basement was blue, soul, that kind of stuff. And I heard Harry, Henry Rollins, um, when he was sitting in for Iggy on Six Music um, a year or two back, talking about going into Ray's basement, and, and, and they had the most amazing you know, stuff that he was after as far as rare gospel and blues and you know, really underground you know, primitive stuff and that, you know, just because it was an amazing shop raise and it's still good these days, but it's obviously, like so much of Soho, not what it once was. You mentioned a few of the characters like Laurie Krieger or Krieger and Alex Strickland. Krieger, Krieger, yeah. 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 Um, this another guy, Steve Bronstein, is, is quite interesting. Yeah, he was an amazing old dude I met and I just met him, you know, through a concert I was at in um, Hoxton. Boy, did he have tales to tell me. I mean, Steve was an old East Ender, and he had been involved in the real hustle and flow of the record trade, which meant, um, you know, when, a, when, when the gangsters used to, uh, you know, hijack a lorry load of um, new albums, Steve got the call. We've got, you know, stock to dispose of and stuff like that. And he had worked in everything, the Two Eyes at Legendary Soho Coffee Bar, and he had great stories. And, was um, he the guy who had a van load of... Bridge over troubled water. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's it. He was told he <laughs> got ten thousand copies of Bridge over troubled water. Can you get rid of it for us? <laughs> yes, I can. And he did. I think he did so well at getting rid of them that one of the um, chains, this guy called Barry Class, another fascinating character who uh, did fingers and mini pies, owned a bunch of chain, small chain called Disky Records, D-I-S-C-I. He offered him one of his shops in Carnaby Street to run because he obviously thought this guy knows how to do business. And so Steve used to run Disky um, in the late 60s, early 70s for a while and that. Was there a suggestion in the book that sometimes these offloading whole van loads of particular records affected the chart position of certain songs? Um, it may have been said by Steve. I think he tells lots of stories of how they used to um, play around. You know, managers would come in and you know buy lots of quantities of records and that. I mean, they say even Brian Epstein manipulated Love Me Do into um, uh, the charts. And Mr Epstein's in the book for running NIMS, uh, the great um, Liverpool record shop. I mean, I, I think the music industry that's why um, gangsters flock to work. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not rocket science, the music industry, that's for sure. What are your hopes for the future of Soho Records? Do you see it having a future, or is well, it going to settle down into this sort of slightly low-key version of the old days? Gosh, who knows, who knows, post-pandemic, what it's going to be like. But I just hope you know, that Soho retains its record shops just because they're about the last real trace of them in the pubs of what Soho once was. And, and there's still a pleasure to go into. I mean, Fonica, Sound of the Universe, Sister Ray, they're all, 
you know, really distinctive individual record shops, you know, and, and the staff knowledgeable, the stock is great, they have a vibe, they're there because they love the music. There. So I really hope um, they exist to, you know, for a while longer at least to give people a taste of, uh, you know, what made Soho so special. Thank you to Garth Cartwright for coming on the show. Both of his books about record shops are currently available at Foils on Charing Cross Road. Other real-world bookshops are available, and of course you can find them all at the usual online outlets. You can find details on the show notes, where I've also posted a few links to information about some of those early record shop pioneers that Garth talked about, as well as his website and Twitter details. That's all over there at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There's a sub-genre of Soho films, that of the coffee shop rock and roll movie. Inspired by the Two Eyes coffee shop and on Compton Street, the place that launched the careers of many a rock and roller, it's a subgenre that consists of, I think, four films. The first British rock and roll film was the very low-budget EJ Fancy production Rock You Sinners from 1957. At the more generously funded end of the market, there's Espresso Bongo and the Tommy Steele story from 1959 and 57 respectively. And then there's our featured film for this episode, The Golden Disc. Made in 1957 at Walton Studios and released by our old friends at Butcher's Film Services in 1958, the plot of The Golden Disc is a slim one. And the film only really troubles itself with the notion of a plot for the first half hour or so. The rest of the film is taken up with musical padding as we are treated to performances from one act after another as they audition to try to get signed up by Charm Records, a record label that's been set up by the film's main players. The story can be summed up as follows. Harry and Joan are two young people, played by Lee Patterson and Mary Steele, who perhaps have a history and possibly a future as a musical double act. Harry has been away for a while, we don't know where, and on his return, the two of them help Joan's Aunt Sarah, played by Linda Gray, to transform her tired old cafe into a hip and happening coffee shop called the Lucky Charm, in which young people can jive to the jukebox, or, as Aunt Sarah mistakenly calls it, the jerk box. Ho, 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 ho. Not up to much, is it? Oh, well, uh, there's plenty of space. How do I fill it? The position's good. Right near the theatre. The coffee's good too, if I do say so myself. But it's not espresso. Espresso. That's coffee. Oh. Two boys came in the other night and asked if we sold espressos. I thought they wanted newspapers. <laughs> oh, you've got a lot to learn, Aunt Sarah. This place could be a gold mine. Don't you think so, Harry? Yes. Just needs brightening up a bit, that's all. So it'd attract the kids. But how? What about plain walls and mad line drawings? This is a lucky charm, isn't it? Mm hmm Well, you want things like four-leaf clovers and... Of course, uh, and horseshoes. That's right. 
And maybe a big horseshoe bar right here. That's it, and get rid of these. Yeah, stools instead. And a music machine. Jukebox. With rock and skiffle. And one of those big coffee machines, you know, with Belching they... steam. Yes, I like it. Do you mean you could afford it? I think so, dear. Well, what are we waiting for? Dynamo, dynamo, dynamo. The Lucky Charm coffee shop becomes such a success that they decide to expand the business and start selling records there. This enterprise is similarly successful, so they decide to launch a record label calling it Charm Records. This is almost too successful, and for half a scene, we, the viewer, experience a sensation I'm going to class as mild concern, when it looks as though they've possibly expanded too quickly and that they might not be able to satisfy all their orders. But phew, thanks to the intervention of a slick, fast-talking American A&R man, everything turns out fine. In the US, in an attempt to appeal to the teen market, the film was released as The In-Between Years, which is the title of one of the songs featured in the audition-slash-padding section of the film, and is sung by Sheila Buxton. Soho film fans will already be aware that Sheila Buxton sang the title song of another of the films we've covered, The Shakedown from 1960, and Philip Green was the musical director of both films. Although the nominal stars are Lee Patterson and Mary Steele, it's really a vehicle for Charm Records' star performer, a baby-faced lad called Terry Dean, who's played by a baby-faced lad called Terry Dean. Terry Dean, in real life, was one of the many performers discovered at the Two Eyes coffee shop, along with people like Cliff Richard, Tommy Steele and Adam Faith. Unlike those other performers, though, his career faltered almost as soon as it had begun, as he buckled under the pressure of stardom. The Golden Disc probably represents the high point of his career and was also perhaps instrumental in precipitating its decline. Lee Patterson, who gets top billing, was a Canadian heartthrob who was based in the UK in the late 50s and had a run of films playing tough guys. The Golden Disc was a bit of a departure from that and he's not entirely convincing as somebody who's down with the kids and neither is co-star Mary Steele, who happened to be married to the film's director, Don Sharp who begins the film singing a soppy ballad in a flouncy old-fashioned frock, but the pair are likeable as Harry and Joan, the are-they-aren't-they couple, at the centre of the film. Aunt Sarah is also very likeable, and although when we first meet her, we assume she's going to be a battle axe, she turns out to be very nice indeed. In fact, everybody in the Golden Disc is nice. Nice, nice, nice. Also nice is Ken Hollings. Ken is a writer, a broadcaster and cultural theorist and he's also a big fan of the Golden Disc. So big a fan of the Golden Disc is Ken Hollings that he recently wrote an essay about it for the German website Die Action 4.0, in which he talks about how the film is connected to, of all things, Brexit, via the notion of exceptional success. It's always a pleasure to catch up with Ken, even when, as on this occasion, it's done online and not in real life. I started by asking him about his love for the Golden Disc, which he recently described on his website as a shamefully overlooked B-movie masterpiece. I, I think to know the Golden Disc is is to love it, and I guess the real background to this is that I is how I first came upon it because it, it it was part of a sort of little cluster of films that Channel Four used to put out quite regularly at about two or three o'clock in the morning. They were like real dead air fillers. And I fell in love with it 
I love its cheeriness, its rather odd public information tone. I mean, it almost feels like this film was made to teach children how the record industry works and what a recording studio looks like. So it's all it's all presented in a in a slightly educational public information way. The storyline is a whisper, really. There there is very little background detail. <laughs> We're focusing on a tale of absolutely unprecedented, exceptional success in that the characters in this film, whatever they turn their hands to, instantly goes gold overnight. I mean, they, they cannot help themselves from being successful. And I remember watching the film and thinking, this is possibly more subversive than the great rock and roll swindle. Um, because it's creating <laughs> such an idealized, utopian, starry-eyed vision of what success in popular culture or popular entertainment could be in the late 50s, early 60s, that it must have corrupted and corroded the dreams and ambitions of an entire generation. No wonder we're all sulky and surly by the late <laughs> 70s. The speed at which the coffee bar becomes a success is instantaneous, isn't it? They haven't even properly opened and people jumping into jive. The speed in which the coffee bar becomes a coffee bar is yeah. extraordinary. I mean, it takes place within the duration of a dance routine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, listeners must picture that absolutely the, the dreariest, drabbest cafeteria you can possibly imagine. You know, it was flop wallpaper. It's, it's just awful. Check tablecloths, old wooden chairs. Stale old sandwiches under glass domes. Exactly. And... It's moribund. It's it's dying on its feet. And this woman, Aunt Sarah, she, she's the aunt of a, of a young sort of variety hall ingenue called Joan. And she's bought this coffee bar and it's there's one customer who becomes this kind of running joke through the film. He's just referred to as Morose Man. Yeah. Who just sits alone in front of a cup of coffee, staring ahead of himself glumly. It's post-war austerity written in brown gravy and coffee grounds. <laughs> you know, it's awful. And they transform it within a dance routine. I mean, it's, it's quite lovely to watch, but basically it, it's, it's transformed from this old cafe into a teenage coffee bar through dance. Gadget machine, jerk Gadget box. machine. It's, they're even actually dancing to a record on the jukebox that's just been installed. Yeah. In a sense, it, it's a great depiction of the notion of how Britain was transforming itself after the Second World War. So it's, you know, it's a few years after the Festival of Britain, but Festival of Britain introduced the concept of modern design and, and, and cleaner lines. Formica. Yeah, and new materials like Formica and Pyrex and different kinds of plastic. Um, and the coffee bar became the kind of high street repository for this kind of modernism you know curved counters wiped down surfaces jukebox gadget machines um all of this stuff is suddenly accessible the first uh, soho coffee bar in fact the first coffee bar in the uk opened it was called the mocha mocha bar and it was round the back of um, old compton street and gina lola bridger opened it so there's there is this already this association of coffee bars with the continental the, the slightly exotic so there was already a culture around the coffee bar so the golden disc is already on very very safe ground why don't you come in The film came out in 58, but it was clearly made in 57. If you look carefully at the 
mont you can see how many times I've seen this film. If you look carefully at the montage of music press front pages, oh, yeah. the chart, the amazing rise, you will see that this, it says 1957. Oh, does um, it? Well spotted. Even better, they release a Terry Dean record on their on their record label that's an instant hit. It's so instant that they release another Terry Dean record the following week. But if you if you look at the music press headlines for the second Terry Dean single. They're actually from the month before um, <laughs> the first one, so they've actually travelled back in time for that sequence. Dean made his debut singing at an international wrestling championship in Earl's Court. He was one of the acts between the bouts. Yeah. And he'd already made a name for himself. He is one of the original Two Eyes uh, rock and rollers. Along with Tommy Steele and Cliff. And Billy Fury and yada yeah. yada. But apparently he was the best. He was absolutely amazing live. See, I found that quite difficult to believe. He's quite a saccharine presence in this film. I think that says more about the age than it does about him. I think it says more about what a career in music or entertainment meant in the late 50s. Put him in context. He's, he's 17, 18 years old. He goes from singing in the two eyes to an international wrestling championship to TV to a big record deal and has a, a hit, has a couple of hits, not huge, but he has a couple of hits. There's always been the sense that rock and roll is just a fad. It's, it's the musical equivalent of the hula hoop. The kids will be playing with something else next week. So quite often, the kind of early rock acts go out of their way to present themselves as being all-round family entertainers. Like, you know, they're still part of the variety theatre circuit. Okay. Um, they're still fitting within a kind of conventional notion of show business. This is just a new flavour. So to position Terry Dean, who also was was having kind of public image problems at the time. He didn't handle fame well, but I don't know how many 17, 18-year-olds do. So this so this is around... He had this incident, didn't he, where he was he got convicted of public drunkenness and he was besotted with this woman. And Could you explain that? When does that... Is that while this is going out, this film? Because it's very close, isn't it? I think that was already in... That was already happening. Just to explain what the incident was, because it's quite notorious, isn't it? Basically, he was, he was madly in love with... <laughs> I love her name. She was a, she was also a pop singer from the era, Edna Savage. Yeah, <laughs> he was head over heels with Edna Savage. Well, they ended up marrying and then divorcing. They had a very stormy relationship, and this caused him to drink more than he should have. And you know, I think he smashed a shop window on one occasion and ripped a payphone out of the wall. The British press, being the British press, absolutely loved this, and and they they kind of demonised him very quickly and presented him as, as being another sort of rock and roll degenerate tearaway. Things got even worse when Dean was conscripted to do his national service. He lasted two weeks in the army. He suffered from uh, severe anxiety and depression issues. He was continually bullied by the other recruits around him who saw him as this kind of you know, very lucky. Toysy pop star. Yeah, exactly. And he he was invalided out of the army with uh, over mental health issues. So I, when I look at him, no, he can't act. He really can't. He's he looks very charming. There's a scene in which Harry, the musical director, is producing Terry Dean's record. Informs him, "We're going back into the studio, Terry. I think I found a new arrangement for your song." And Terry just goes, "Great!" Yeah. <laughs> and then just stands there while the rest of the dialogue goes on. And he's completely checked out of the scene. It's like no one's told him, you know, if you're in the scene, you've actually still got to listen and react to what people say. It's like when little kids mime each other's words in an activity play, isn't it? Yeah, he just looks at the floor and he's got this kind of bemused grin on his face. You can see why he was popular for a short time, though. He was 
you know, he's got this angelic, boyish face. And I mean, he's not got a ton of charisma, I don't think, as a performer. He, he just he always looks up in the air. And it, the songs are so kind of soppy. I think, again, that's about the positioning. I think that, I think he sings three or four songs. Uh, the nearest we get to a rocker is Come On In and Be Loved, yeah. which sounds alarmingly like All Shook Up yeah. by Elvis. The others are much blander, sort of middle-of-the-road, sort of pop fare so again, I think they were trying to, or he was being advised to come on. You, you know, rock and roll is dying. You don't want to be perceived as a as a hoodlum juvenile delinquent. So you know, aim for the mums and dads. That cabaret show at the beginning, that variety show, <laughs> it's this terrible, <laughs> some kind of teen idol who's who's worse than Terry. Oh who's yeah, very this popular. is Dennis. Yeah, Dennis, Dennis Lotus. I wanna wrap you up. Dennis Lotus was actually um, a recording star. He was he was actually quite well known for a kind of suave, um, right. sort of elegant way of singing that apparently charmed um, the female members so of the audience. He's a crooner, basically. He's a crooner. He changed the spelling of his name. Because in the movie, he's billed as Dennis, spelt with one N. And and at the time, in the late 50s, early 60s, fans would, would wear sort of T-shirts or sweaters with the, the first name of their favoured star sort of embroidered or appliqued in large letters sure, on the yeah. yeah and you see them you see them quite a bit in the golden disc but the point is that the his fans have actually got dennis with one n in huge letters across their chest and when they move around it actually looks as though they've got penis yeah. uh, written on <laughs> on their chest i want to make quite sure that you will never own. Which is what and it's all about. The, the whole, all, all those teen films, they all want a bit of penis yeah. or the, the lady equivalent. The whole movie seethes with unrequited, repressed sexual tension. I mean, it's going on all the way through the film. You've got Dennis um, doing his, his suave ballad about wrapping a girl in cellophane. And, you know, the audience is wild about him and then, and then poor old Joan comes on. If I were going your way and, you know, half the audience is gone and the rest are just bored teenagers either sort of making out in the in the back row. But Aunt Sarah really likes her. Yeah, Aunt Sarah loves the act, you know, and she sings a very nice little ballad about, you know, if you were going my way kind of thing. I think that's the demonstration. I mean, I think they're attempting to show that she, with her flouncy skirt and her long gloves, is the past. Even yeah. though she's down with the kids, she knows what the kids want. She's not providing that in her No, in her and, and we never hear from her again. No, um, not She not doesn't sing again no. in the movie. And as I said, we never find out what, what Harry and Joan's act would be. But Aunt Sarah, quite like Aunt Sarah as a character. She's She looks like, uh, what's she called, the Wicked Witch of the West character. Yeah. She's got that sort of stern look, and she disapproves all these teenagers. But actually, when she gets taken on her little tour of coffee bars, her little montage sequence... First of all, she's disapproving, but then she gets yeah. in the end. She's it's it's not for her, but she quite likes the fact that the kids are into it, and she yeah, does. And, and she, she, yeah, and she's the she's the driving force behind Charm Records. Yeah, she's she's an important figure. So she owns the cafe that's dying on its feet, and she's the one that produces the money that allows them to transform the coffee bar into the Lucky Charm. This kind of thematic, beautiful modernist hangout for the kids and she's the one who decides to start selling records in the coffee bar you know because the kids come and they listen to the record on the jukebox and she says well why shouldn't they buy the record here as well and so they actually open up a sort of wing to the cafe 
which is which is where the record shop is. And then later, she's the one who says to Harry and Joan, who who are still, you know, for them, the cafe is just a kind of paying gig until they make it in showbiz. And she's the one who says, well, why don't you start your own record label? You know, you seem to know what the kids want. Why don't you go out and do that? So she is quite a powerful figure. And the, the, the sequence where in order for her to understand what they mean by a coffee bar, because she, uh, she kind of rather revealingly says at one point, oh, I had two teenagers come in here yesterday asking for an espresso. I thought they wanted a newspaper. <laughs> uh, yeah. They go on this great round of all these these amazing coffee bars, most of which I think are located around Soho or the West End. There's the Tangier, the Bamboo Bar, the Bar Minui, the Macambo, the Black and White, El Dorado. Maybe all our real it, places. Yeah, and, and but they do this really nice montage of the, of the of the sort of signs outside the coffee bars, but they've done it in the way that you would see in a, like a Hollywood musical where people go around exclusive nightclubs, you know, like going to 21 or the Morocco or El Morocco, whatever it might be. It's exactly the kind of the same kind of montage, only they're drinking frothy coffee and listening to a skiffle song, Dynamo by the Hobos, who were an actual thing at the time. Okay, stand by. Take one. Fancy whiskey. Johnny O. <laughs> There's, I mean, there's quite a lot of bands, isn't there, in the film that are... I mean, it does feel like once the plot is out of the way, which is the first half, maybe? Barely a third. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's only... It's basically, after that, just padding of different bands. Yeah. Sheila Buxton, Nancy Whiskey, who yeah, was new to me. Great. And so he travelled on Johnny O, Johnny O, Johnny O You know I love you Essentially, it turns into a kind of variety show. Yeah. Using the flimsiest pretext, which is that they are auditioning and then recording acts for their record label, Charm Records. And their lineup is almost indigestible. It's either kind of people you've never heard of or people you never want to hear again. Uh, in one way or another, but there are some there are some diamonds amongst the garlic. It has to be said. The two really interesting acts are Nan- Nancy Whiskey, who who was a Scottish folk singer doing a skiffle number, kind of called Johnny O, which sounds vaguely you kind of think it might be a folk song that someone's updated, but then you look in the credits of the film and it was actually written probably for the film. And she's really good. And she's backed by uh, Sonny Stewart in his Skiffle Kings. And the other really interesting character is Phil Seaman who doesn't even get a name check in the movie. They refer to just recording, right, we're ready to record the jazz group. And the jazz group comes on. They actually cut away from the band very quickly and, and they use the music as for another montage of, of success. Seaman is actually a really interesting character and, and possibly the one that's most out of place in this movie. He was actually a very respected jazz drummer, probably one of the best in Europe at that time. People like Roshan, Roland Kirk, Sonny Rollins uh, would play with him right. uh, when they were in London. He was, I think he was a resident drummer at Ronnie Scott's for a while. He taught Ginger Baker. He does have a, an air of Ginger Baker about him, actually, this mm. time, drumming away with his yeah. fag on. Yeah. In fact, he, he's well known for having smoking cigarettes when he was playing because he actually had a, an ashtray sort of screwed into the, the, the drum kit. <laughs> um, Ginger Baker said he was you know, one of the greatest drummers ever. He was also an absolutely fiendish drug addict and abused alcohol as well. I mean, he was one of those people whose his, his appetite and capacity for drugs was phenomenal, which in the end made him a, a very unreliable player. So that's a re- that in itself is like a really interesting piece of, of sort of bohemian sort of 50s jazz Soho background that you've, you've got this, this, this 
extraordinary and, and quite tragic figure. Soho isn't, I don't think it's referenced in the film at all, is it? As a place, no, so no, I think, um, is it a Soho film? I would say yes. I, I think it's a Soho film by association mm. because I mean, I Terry agree. Dean, yeah, I think it, Two yeah. Eyes. I think it's always implied that they're that they're near Soho. They're certainly somewhere between Piccadilly and you know around Piccadilly. You know, going on towards Haymarket because you've got the theatres that they mention. Admittedly, it was it was filmed in Walton on Thames. The studio at Walton on Thames, I think, was first established in the late Victorian era. And it became Nettlefold as well, didn't it, for a while? Yeah. It's a butcher's film, which is... We've done a lot of butcher's films now on Soho Bites. Butchers had been around since the Boer War. Yeah, we did a little feature on butchers a few episodes ago. They were all over everything, butchers. And then just sank without trace in the end. I I think you can definitely see the Golden Disc as being one of their attempts to touch a a wider audience, a bigger audience. Uh, So I think, in a sense, everyone's trying for this this broad appeal in this film. Terry's there because... You know, he wants to be an all-round family entertainer because who knows how long rock and roll's going to last. Butchers is trying to tap into a youth audience, and you know, an audience that's in fact still going to the cinema. And I suppose the the glorious, gruesome irony of this film, of course, is that it doesn't do any of those things. No, Terry Dean never gets a gold record in his career. Um, he had some hits, but he never he never got a gold record. The nearest he ever got was being presented one at the end of the the movie, and four years later. Walton Studios was was sold and um, converted into luxury flats, so, yeah. which is a familiar story. One of the people you wanted to talk about when we were setting up the interview was you seem to be quite interested in Don Sharp, the director. And he did yes. have quite an interesting career after this, quite an early film for him, but he went on to do some uh, an eclectic mix, I think is what yeah. you call it. He is interesting. I mean, he was, a, he was a kind of journeyman director. He did lots of different kind of things um sort of romantic uh, adaptations of sort of bodice ripper novels and 60s telly that persuaded and a lot he did a lot of the yeah. you know a lot of episodes of the avengers and the champions and things like that he also though did a lot of work for hammer uh, and the thing that i only recently discovered but it was a kind of like what 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 moment was he directed psychomania yeah which is this wonderful early 70s attempt to do a well i've described it as the greatest zombie biker satanist film made in the uk if not the only zombie biker satanist film oh, well i think it's definitely top of that category yeah it? i think yeah number one in the field of one as mad magazine used to say but it's such a great film it was it was it stars beryl reed and it's got george sanders in his very last role before he he sadly took his own life yeah um, nicky henson being um very yes. very butch and uh, attractive young gentleman yes it's it's got everything he also directed a few harry allen towers films who i've made a program about a couple of years ago and that version of um, 39 Steps with Robert Powell. Yeah, that was one of his. yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, that is that is an odd mix of films to have done. I think he's probably, you know what, he's probably one of those kind of safe pair of hands directors. Yeah. That you bring him in and, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll bring something in on budget and it'll look good. You know, he, he delivers a film. and, and um, Yeah, on time, on budget. Uh, have you seen Rock You Sinners? Yes, yes. It has all the gritty urban realism that the Golden Disc manages to avoid. Uh, yeah. In in the sense that they've actually taken 16mm cameras into dance halls and out onto streets in the West End. So you get a real sense of what was going on. The Golden Disc does, is taking place in a kind of studio vacuum, except for a few establishing shots. So it's very much an in, you know sort of inside job the golden disc and and i think together with rocky sinners you get a really 
really interesting picture of what was going on. I think Rockusin is pretty much the same plot as Golden Disc. Yeah, pretty much. This time we have a we have a we have a sort of industry a a disc jockey who wants to make a TV rock and roll show. I kind of like the talent that they've got. I think the rocking schoolboy is particularly stunning. Yeah, and actually, where whereas the Golden Disc has this padding made up of these bands that come in and mount their own records. In Rock You Sinners, the padding is basically handheld cameras at the Hammersmith Palais or wherever it is. And it looks quite good. It looks quite quite raw and exciting. You know, people are actually yeah, there having a good time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got some grit to it. I mean, the dancing's amazing. I mean, in, in the Golden Disc, they're mostly hand jiving. You know, which was a thing for coffee bars, but that's mostly what you see is, is a lot of hand jiving. You don't see much dancing going on. Harry, played by Lee Patterson, Canadian Lee Patterson, has been away for a while. Never, never quite understand what he's doing in London. And But Lee Patterson always, he carved out a market for himself in British film, British B films, as an American. It could be an American cop who happens to be in town and gets caught up in a, a rumble. But not quite sure what he's doing in this. I mean, he's just a guy with, with a, as far as we're concerned, an American accent. Although he was Canadian. They were always putting a, a sort of American element in to see how, you know, whether they could sell it to the States. Uh, I don't know how well any of these films I did. Don't know I think, I think well, no. the running time suggests to me that they would have probably gone out at, at the bottom of a double or even triple bill. Yeah. There is another American character, though, who is specifically American, Mr. Washington, <laughs> who comes on at the end, who has all these American cliches like, um, I like the way you say that. That's the kind of way I like to hear things said. And yeah. he's, just, yeah. he's, he's supposed to be this kind of like rootin', tootin', shootin' kind of guy. Yeah. And he um, sorts yeah, them all yeah. out. Straight talking. It's yeah. all about the business, the bottom line. Um, yeah, and he's like this little deus ex machina who comes in at the end and, and sort of basically sorts out a record deal with charm so that their records can be distributed in the States. And, you know, the implication is that the rocket that they have been riding on since the beginning of this movie will just keep going up, 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 up. The big Decca-type EMI record company who have been pressing up charm records for them suddenly cut off the supply. Uh, on purpose, pressure. It's a devious yeah, they plan, do it deliberately. It? Yeah. Um, the problem is that this big record company, their acts are really poor and they're not selling anymore. So, so they want Terry Dean. And in fact, borrowing something from Espresso Bongo, it turns out that Terry was underage when he signed the contract with Charm. So um, there's this moment of, well, I guess we're going to have to sell our dreams and give up on our dreams and go with this big record company. And and then Washington from Washington comes in and and with his, in his straight talking way sorts them out. So, yeah, I like what I see, and what I see, I want, kind of thing. Um, and so they're all really happy again. Yeah. One of the things that I lo- really like about this film is there's the beginnings of that kind of gentle, slightly cookie humour that, like the Beatles were really good at on film and TV, or certainly the British invasion bands were very good at, at sort of bandying about. When Mr Washington appears, his entrance is, so Harry says something's bound to turn up. And then there's a knock at the door and they all look at each other. Surely it can't be turned up already. And yeah, then it exactly. has, because then he walks. You mentioned um, Espresso Bongo. Hmm. How do you think it compares to Espresso Bongo, having compared it to Rocky Sinners? All right, I'm, going, I'm, I'm probably going to lose your love and that of all your listeners. I, I secretly prefer it to Espresso yeah, Bongo. Okay. No, that's good. I, I, I mean, I think Espresso Bongo is, is beautifully made and, you know, there's some tremendous performances in it and it, it's got a better pedigree in any case, you know, because it starts out as a stage musical. So it's got everything it needs to work. But 
there's something gentle and a little silly about the golden disc. You know, when, when I'm watching Espresso Bongo, and I do love the film, but I kind of feel like I'm, I'm being sort of slapped in the face over and over and over again, you know, with, with all the sarcasm and the put downs and the this really fast talking showbiz cutthroat approach to everything. Whereas in, in the golden disc, like, as you say, you know, it, as we agreed, they just go from one success to the other, and everything's very nice. And uh, you know, when the when the jukebox breaks down, Terry just picks up his guitar and you know sings to the kids, and they love it. You know. So Terry Dean isn't the only person who plays himself in the film. No, indeed, we have David Jacobs, the first DJ, as it were, um, who were became famous for introducing um, jukebox jury. But actually, this is before jukebox jury started, yeah. isn't it? Which is yeah, it's almost like they saw this film and invented jukebox jury from the back of the yeah. golden disc. Yeah, I think. I think their program's called something like it's our tip for the it's our pick of the top or our top, top tip, of the tips tip, tip, something top, yeah typically top but top. essentially he's yeah he's he's becoming the presenter of jukebox jury and he does have that sort of slightly bemused um, look as <laughs> as you know the world of rock and roll kind of spills out in front of him I mean essentially we're sort of hitting that period just before the Beatles when it's all it's all becoming a bit directionless and and you know the the Tommy Steels and the Cliff Richards are heading into variety and being you know all-round family entertainers and TV and the idea of rock and roll being something disruptive or exciting or rebellious or radical has been sort of swiftly buried. So you, you, you're just about to enter this kind of moratorium almost. You're really seeing a, a, a moment of big transition, big change, old and new clashing. And because it's presented so casually, I think in a sense we're almost observing it much more accurately. I think we can see a lot more of these big changes, whether it's rock and roll, television, the demographics involved in entertainment, even the concept of popular culture. The essay that Ken Hollings wrote about the Golden Disc is on the Diaction 4.0 website, and I'll include a link to that on the show notes for this episode. Thanks to Ken for coming on the show, and thanks again to Garth Cartwright for giving up his Saturday afternoon to sit on a wet bench with me. Terry Dean is thankfully still with us and has had an eventful life since his rocky days in the late 50s, including a stint as a Christian evangelical singer and several divorces. He now lives with an Italian countess and is, by all accounts, very happy. The show notes for this episode are packed with interesting tidbits about my guests, the film, its stars, and, of course, record shops. Go there now, without delay, to SohoBytesPodcast.com. Remember, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BytesSoho, or email us at SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jim and Young. That's it for now. See you soon.